Good evening, everyone. This is our weekly Soul of the Parsha class. Every week we dive into an element in the Parsha. This year we're focusing on the first Aliyah, the first segment of each Parsha, and we're trying to take some gem, some pearl, some hidden pearl, something from the depths of the Parsha that would really give light to our to our lives and to the week that we are having. And now we've arrived at the Parsha Vaishlach. And our topic for today is in what way can we view conflicts, certain people we have conflicts with, adversaries, opponents, people who are, who are our enemies, could be, you know, a minor, you know, fight or something bigger. Whenever we are challenged by another person, the idea that we want to explore today is that each of these conflicts, these opponents that we're meeting, that we don't like them, that we like to, we would wish that we that they wouldn't be in our lives, really they hold on to sparks of our own soul. Sparks of our own soul are hidden within our enemies. That's the topic we want to explore this evening. It's also um, the week in which we celebrate the day of Yutet Kislev, which is called the Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year of Hasidut, the beginning of the Hasidic year, so to speak. And, and in fact, for the Alter Rebbe, because this day commemorates the day, the first Rebbe of Chabad, the day that he was released from prison, he was also in a state of conflict. He was put in prison uh, because it was other Jews who who told lies about him, and they made it so that he would be in prison. And so he had to face the same thing. And in, in, indeed, he wrote a very famous letter that's based on a verse from the very opening of this parasha, which we're going to look at later on. Now, um, this parasha, Vaishlach, uh, concludes a series of three consecutive parashot portions, which tell the main story of Yaakov, of Jacob. So Yaakov is still going to be with us for four more parashot until the very end of Bereshit, of Genesis. He dies at the very end of Bereshit, uh, not before giving out blessings to all of his 12 sons, the 12 future tribes. But these three parashot, which are Toldot, Vayetze, and Vayishlach, they make up the main chronicle the main story of his life. We can say that from now on, in the remaining four parashot, he assumes the role of a supporting actor in the story of Yosef, of Joseph. Joseph becomes the protagonist, and his father, Yaakov, becomes a uh, supporting actor. Maybe he can win the Oscar for supporting actor, but only for these parashot can he win the Oscar for lead actor. So it's three parashot. In a way, we can look at these three parashot as a play with three acts. So this is the concluding act. And you'll see in a minute that it's, a, it's an amazing metaphor to look at this, uh, his, the main story of his life as made up of these three parashot, which tell the three acts of his life. Now, there's a well-known uh, saying by a well-known playwright. And he said that as a rule, if you see a, a gun in the first act of a play, it must fire by the end of the third act of the play. Because nothing happens for, for, by chance in a play. And a play is very much a, a concentrated imitation of life. And as, as people of faith, we do believe that life is with meaning, with rhyme and reason and structure. And things make sense and things, you know, circles are closed and ends are met and things that that didn't make sense in, in the beginning, we believe and, and hope and aspire to having them make sense at some point later on. And in a play, you can see this in a very concise way. And the famous image is that the, if there's a gun in the first act, it has to fire by the end of the third act. And playwrights and, and writers have used this technique in many, many ways. And of course, the idea is to create a sense of symmetry and of closure. Now, this idea applies in a beautiful way when you just look at these three parashot, right? Toldot, Vayetze, and Vayishlach. 
as a three-act play. And what you see when you look at it is you see there's a very, very clear symmetrical structure. And it goes like this. In Parashat Tuldot, first act takes place in Eretz Israel, land of Israel. And Yaakov is facing a main antagonist. His main antagonist is Esav. And he cheats Esav out of the blessings, and, but, it, it, but Esav is still, he discovers it and he, he chases him. And, and, and then he's sent by his mother and his father away to Haran. So the, the first act ends with Yaakov running away from Eretz Israel. Second act takes place entirely in Chutzlart, outside of Eretz Israel. And he has a new antagonist, a new opponent. The new opponent is Lavan, his uncle, which becomes his father-in-law. So, uh, and then he confronts him. And, and it's a long, complicated parasha. It's the parasha we just came out of. And then it ends with him going back to Eretz Israel, heading back to Eretz Israel. Third act is a mirror image of the first act, right? Vayishlach is a mirror image of Toldot. Again, it goes back to Eretz Israel, and again the antagonist becomes Esav. And but this time he 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 wins. He, he doesn't end it running away from Esav. He ends up making peace with Esav and continuing on with his life. And then the 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 mantle can pass on to Yosef, who's the protagonist of, as we said, the next few parashat. So, um, this structure is what is called, is something like a palindrome. What is a palindrome? A palindrome is when you have a sentence or a series of numbers or any kind of phrase that's completely symmetrical, that you can read it from the, from the beginning to the end and from to the end to the beginning, and it mirrors itself. The most famous, or should the, 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 the most famous short uh, English palindrome is the short phrase, Madam, I'm Adam, right? Which may have been the first thing Adam told Eve. Madam, I'm Adam is a complete palindrome. If you read it from the end to the beginning, it's exactly the same letters. Madam, I'm Adam. So, and, and there are many, many other palindromes and there are Latin ones and there are very complicated ones sometimes. And people like palindromes because they echo something very, that they feel to be very true about life in some way. So we have the three-act play of Yaakov's life, and we see it's a kind of palindrome in the sense that it's, again, outside of Eretz Israel facing, sorry, in Eretz Israel facing Esav, outside of Eretz Israel facing Lavan, and then going back to Eretz Israel facing Esav again, a mirror image. And the palindromic structure is even more, is, is the strongest in the middle parsha, right? It's not our parsha, but we're just, going, we're just going to look at it to see that because this is the heart of the palindrome. So it in itself is the most palindromatic, right? It's completely symmetrical. It starts with Yaakov leaving Eretz Israel. He has a dream. The dream involves angels. He makes a vow to return to Eretz Israel and to serve God. And God tells him that he's going to look after him. Then he goes to uh, deeper into Haran, and he Lavan cheats him into working for seven years and then not getting the wife he was supposed to get, and he cheats him into marrying uh, Leah. Then we have the story of marrying the two women, the two sisters, and having all these children, and also marrying their two maidservants and all this. And then Yaakov now has to cheat himself out of Lavan's grip. Lavan is doing everything in his power to make sure that he stays there and he's manipulating him. This time he is the winner. And again, Lavan tries to cheat him, but he wins and he is able to run away from Lavan. And then in, as he's running away, he has another dream in which God appears again and, re, and says to him, I remember the vow you made in the beginning of the parsha, and I'm going to look after you and he meets some more angels, and the parsha ends as he's heading towards Eretz Yisrael. So it's a perfectly palindromic picture, in which it starts with the dream of the dream and the angels and the vow, and then there's a conflict with Lavan, and then there's the story with the wives, and then there's another conflict with Lavan. This time, he's, he, Lavan isn't able to cheat him, 
and then and then again there's a dream and the and the um, uh, the mentioning of the vow and angels and he's coming out of Eretz Yisrael. So it's it's just amazing, just beautiful. We have the three act structure; they're completely symmetrical, and and in the middle one, in which Esav, we don't hear about him, we forget about him, it's all Lavan, but it's again, it's two conflicts with Lavan. So we have, it's really Esav, Lavan, Lavan, Esav. That's the story of uh, Yaakov's conflicts as he is going through these three acts, as he's going forward with, with, with his life. And in fact, we know later on in this parasha, when Yaakov fights the angel, the mysterious night time, fight of Yaakov with the angel, whom the sages tell us was really <coughs> the angel, he was really Esav's soul root, or Esav's guardian angel, or root angel. Uh, the, the, the angel gives him the name Israel. Why? Because you have strifed, or you have fought with gods and men. And then Rashi asks, who are these men? And he answers, it's Esav and Lavan. Yaakov has had two main enemies in his life, but we can really see it's not Esav Lavan, it's Esav Lavan Lavan Esav, because it's a mirror image, and he confronts each one twice, and only in the second time is he able to really uh, vanquish them, to conquer them, to win the fight. He needed to have two fights in which he wins to a certain degree, uh, but he, he also loses, and only the second time does he completely get it uh, fully right. So, this brings up a very interesting idea. Maybe life is a palindrome. Maybe our life is a palindrome. And in the first part of our life, in the first act and a half, if you wish, uh, we're facing things we don't have the ability to fully face, really. We're practicing, or we're getting to know ourselves, or we're setting the stage and and there are all these objects lying around, like the that you know that pistol, that that gun that doesn't shoot, and another thing that we don't know what to do with. Really, we're being armed. We're being given the wisdom, the advice, the the equipment, you know, the mental, spiritual equipment we need to face the second half of our lives. And maybe the second half of our lives is all about going back backwards to all the things that we've encountered and rectifying them and correcting them. It's up to us if, we, if we're able to do it or not. And it's up to us if this becomes a, you know, symmetrical in a negative sense, that we just go back to where we started. That's a horrible way to end our lives. Or we're able to change it uh, just like Yaakov did. It's not a perfect symmetry. It's a symmetry in which, there, in which every, everything is solved in a way that's asymmetrical to the first half. That's what makes it a story that progresses and doesn't regress. And it's up to us what we do in the second half of our lives, in which we are really go, retracing our steps in a way. It's, it, it's, a, it's a thought. You know, not everyone in the, in, the, in the Torah has this story. But Yaakov has it, so maybe it says something about our lives. That we're, in the second half, we're retracing our steps. This could easily explain um, uh, something like old people, that as they're getting very, very older, uh, they forget a great deal of what happened, them, happened to them during most of their lives, and they go back to their early childhood. And we know this, that you can sign some really old people, and they could be completely senile, and they, in the extreme, the most extreme case, they don't even remember their own family. But they do remember clearly their early childhood. And in a way, the feeling I get when I, when I think of this, when I, when I, I happen to, to see this, is that it, look, it seemed to me like this person is now revisiting his childhood home, his childhood, early childhood years, because there are some loose ends that he needs to tie up. The, the, the final things that he needs to do in his life, they have nothing to do with what happened to him during the later years of his life. Because now he's, the, the palindrome is reaching, he's, he's, he's you know, going back to the beginning. And, and the only things he needs to rectify are early childhood memories. It's just a thought, but it's a thought that goes along with the idea of the, of the palindrome. Now there's Shakespeare in his famous speech, The World is But a Stage. And he likens life to a stage. He ends, he ends this monologue 
with the phrase that uh, old age is second childishness. It's not a very nice term. And he says it's second childishness, and he says it in a negative way. He says this, that we become like little children. And, but the thing is that this is the challenge. The challenge is do we, uh, how do we choose, how do we uh, um, face the different difficulties, the various difficulties and conflicts that we have to go through in the second half of our lives so that the second childishness or second childhood uh, wouldn't be going back to, again, it wouldn't be a complete you know, symmetrical mirror image of the first, because then we're just, it was just one big circle and nothing happened. We need to make this circle into a spiral. We need to make this circle into something that we're rectifying, that we're elevating, that we're bigger, not smaller, as we reach the end of our lives. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we understand this in, in a deeper way? So in order to do this, we want to get a deeper sense of this idea that life is like a palindrome, right? The idea of the palindrome is that you can read it from both directions, right? And it makes sense. It makes the same sense. It's the same story. And, but our, what we want to do is to sort of a little bit break the palindrome. It's going to be a palindrome because maybe, again, this is the story of Yaakov. But in the second half, he, he does this rectification. But if you just, just looking at a palindrome, you can read it in both directions. So let's get a deeper understanding of what this could symbolize in our lives. What could this mean? That we could look at our life, we can read the story of our lives from beginning to end, but we can also somehow read the story of our lives from end to beginning. What, what could this mean? So, there's a, there's a famous uh, phrase used in non-Jewish cultures. Many, many cultures use this. They call old age the autumn of our lives. They refer to being young as springtime, back in the spring of my youth, in the springtime of my youth, and now I'm in the autumn of my days. And there are all these classical books that are, start out with the narrator being old, and it says, now I'm in the autumn of my days, and I'm going to recollect what happened to me when I was younger. In Hebrew, there is a completely opposite phrase. When in, in, a, in, an, in, a, in a classical Hebrew book or text, when you encounter the term in the winter of my days, it means when I was young, not when I was old. It means when I was young. Youth is likened to winter, and therefore old age is likened to spring. And the idea is very simple. The idea is that the usual terminology is talking about the body. The body fades. The body becomes weaker and weaker. It starts when you're young. This is your springtime. You know, live it up. Make use carpe diem. Make use of every day. And now you're young and you should enjoy life because it's the, it's the springtime of your days. And then as you grow older, you become weaker and your memory fades and your powers fade. And, you, and it's like winter in which all the flowers are covered by snow or ice and, and so on. Whereas the Jewish classical term that talks about youth as winter is talking about the soul. Of course, Jews, like everyone else, had the exact same experience bodily of growing up. As you grow up, your body becomes weaker. It's universal. But when they were speaking about youth as winterish and old age as springish, the idea was that as the body weakens, the soul becomes more radiant. The soul is freer from the constraints of the body. The body, because the body becomes weaker, there's not so, so many inclinations and urges and desires, and they, they, they weaken. And then in your old age, you, you become softer and more open and more spiritual, and people open up to spirituality as they're older. And in a way, if you're sensitive to what's going on inside you, then you know that old age is the springtime of the soul. The soul is now really reaching now its youth. So, let's look at this for a minute. We can see this as just talking about the soul and the body having opposite experiences. The body becomes weaker and the soul becomes stronger or younger. But if we take this idea of youth and old age regarding the soul,
we can also come up with a new explanation. And the new explanation is that the soul is moving backwards in time. The soul is moving backwards in time from the future to the past, not from the past to the future. So let's look at this idea for a minute. So one way of looking at it is you can think about the moment of death. The moment of death is when the soul becomes completely free and it reunites with its source. So in a way you could say, now look at li- look, let's look at life backwards. Let's, le- let's read the palindrome backwards. If you think about life as moving backwards, you start with the day you die. The day you die is the day your soul is born in the reverted time dimension. So it's born. It's the youngest. It's like a day-year-old infant on the day you die. It's, it's young. It's pristine. It's perfect. In the ideal life, that's what it would be. It's just like a perfect, pure soul. And then as we move backwards in time, the soul grows older and older and older. And then when you get to your bar or bat mitzvah, which is traditionally when the soul comes into your body, here we're moving backwards in time. We can say that the soul becomes a little bit senile. When moving backwards, we get to when you're 10 or 9 or 8 years old, the soul doesn't remember anything by now. And then by the time we get to the beginning of your life, the soul doesn't remember anything. It's like a little child that doesn't remember anything. Of course, there's the other image, which is that the soul was already there from the very beginning. It was young and it just forgot. The angel slapped on its face and it forgot everything it's new, as we know from the famous story. But now we want to, we want to examine this opposite idea. The soul is moving backwards in time. Now let's look at the same thing, moving in the usual direction. We start out with a very old soul. It's very old. It's senile. It doesn't remember where it came from. As we grow older and we mature and we get to our bar bat mitzvah and, and, and we, we begin to understand things and to have a clear sense of who God is and having a soul and a body, the soul is now recovering its memory because it's growing younger. Right? We're moving in, into the future, but the soul is moving in the opposite direction, so it's getting younger. And then as we grow older and older, the soul becomes younger and younger. And then when we reach the end of our lives, the soul becomes this pristine, pure child, baby. Right? This is a very interesting idea to look at. Now, this connects very interestingly. When I was younger, I used to read a lot of science fiction and watch a lot of science fiction movies. And I have to do something with these memories. And one of the very interesting motif in science fiction stories and you can see variations of it in many books and stories and, and movies, is you have this protagonist, he's going through his whatever his adventures are, and then at some point, a mysterious stranger appears out of nowhere and saves him, and then disappears again. He has no idea who this mysterious stranger is. He completely saved his life, or did something, or prevented something, and he doesn't know how, could, how could this could be, and he doesn't know who this stranger is. Usually, this stranger is from far away, he can only see his silhouette, or he's dressed in some some other way, or he doesn't recognize him. And then the story goes on. And as the story goes on, the same protagonist acquires some sort of means of time travel. And then he starts traveling back into the past. And then he meets his former self and sees the former self in danger and saves his life. And it turns out that the mysterious stranger that the protagonist met in the first half of the story was his future self, coming from the future to save him. So taking this idea into our, connecting it with our parasha, we could say, and with this idea, it's not yet the parasha, we'll go back to, we'll, we'll connect this all to the parasha in a minute. We could say that the soul moving backwards in time is our future self, moving backwards in time in our direction. We, our conscious, present self, is moving from the past to the present, to the future, and it doesn't know the future. And, and then we, we are getting all these mysterious help 
and advice and inspiration from our future self as it is moving in our direction from the future to the past. We suddenly meet someone strange and this idea, there's a moment of inspiration. Whenever we have a moment of inspiration or, uh, or someone just appears into our lives, you know, many people feel that they have something like a Gilui Eliyahu, that the prophet Elijah suddenly came into their lives for one instant as a mysterious stranger and then left. And we, we can, the, the prophet Elijah is something within each and every one of us. Maybe it's, again, the idea that it's your future self sending messages back to you because your soul is born in the, in, the, in the future and it's moving in your direction. And as we're growing through life, we're really taking in more and more of, the, of our future self as it's traveling in our direction, right? So this is a very interesting idea to, you know, ponder and, you know, walk through life with. But now I'm going to make this idea even more interesting. Because there was another science fiction movie (laughs) which did a variation on this. The variation was that the protagonist is going around through his, going about his business. And then he confronts a mysterious stranger, but it's not a helper. The mysterious stranger doesn't help him or save his life in any way. The very opposite. The mysterious stranger fights him. He has no idea where he's coming from. Coming out of jumping out of nowhere. He's dressed all in black. You can't see his face. He has a mask. And it, this mysterious stranger is coming out of nowhere and fighting him. And he has no idea why. And he does his best. And well, in that particular movie, it just had, he ended up running away. And he didn't know what happened. Why did it happen? And we, we don't know either. But then as the movie progresses, we realize that the protagonist acquires a, a means to travel back in time, and he does travel back in time. And then as he's going backwards in time, and he's actually traveling backwards in time, he confronts his former self, who's standing in the way of the mission that he has to accomplish, which is a very good mission. It's not. It turns out he's not an antagonist at all. It's him. It's his future self fighting his former self. And not, for, not because he hates him, or because he's against him, but because the past self is not aware of the fact that the future self going backwards needs to do something very important somewhere there in the past, and he tries to stop him, and then the future self has to fight him. But it's really, the future self is wiser, of course, than the present self. So then we realize that what, who we thought was an antagonist is the protagonist in the future, in the later act in the movie. The movie itself is like a palindrome. And, and it was all something very positive. So this gives us a new idea into our head. And this is the main thing I was aiming at from the very beginning. Maybe, as our soul is moving backwards in time, from the future to the, to the, to the, to the, to the present, coming in our direction, it doesn't assume a happy smooth, sleek, nice, you know, path. It's not nice as if you meet your future self and you say, wow, this is another wonderful insight. As I'm growing older, I I now discover, thank you, future self, for teaching me another wonderful thing through all these positive experiences you're coming and teaching, giving me all those gifts. It doesn't work that way. Because we don't have the vessels to contain our future self. So we don't see him as an angel or as a friend or as, you know, a benefactor, or a savior, we perceive our future self as an opponent, as an enemy, as an adversary. And this is the form that our future self assumes. So the idea is that all of the opponents, all of our enemies, all of the people we have quarrels with, the people who give us a hard time, the neighbor, the spouse, the child, the parent, the estranged friend, whatever it is, who gives us a hard time, is a projection of our future self, which we meet in order to face him, not run away from it, face him, confront him, do what we need to do, learn something from him, or teach him something, or confront him, You know, the thing is not to run away. That's the main thing, not to run away. And as you confront it, and you learn the lesson that you need to do, you then realize retroactively, oh my God, 
this opponent was holding on to sparks of my future self. He was my future self in disguise. He was the next step in my evolution, dressed up in a way that seemed to me to be antagonistic to what I want, because I don't really know what's good for me yet. But through this conflict, I learned something new, and I was able to connect with the higher level of my own soul, which was really wrapped up, hidden, within this opponent. So the, the opponent could be an actual real person, or it could be just my image of a certain person, or it could be whatever hardship that I'm facing. Even if it's an actual real person, it doesn't change the fact that in my story, in my life story, for me, he is a projection of my future self, and he's holding on to sparks that, that, that are part of my soul, of my future soul. And in fact, the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidut, has actually said this. He said, all of the enemies that you meet in life hold on to sparks of your soul. And you need to pray for your enemies. You need to pray that your enemy does tshuva, or that you do tshuva in order to understand what's going on. That this whole thing resolves in the best possible way. And then when you do this spiritually, you get the sparks that you need, and then the enemy, whatever was left of the enemy, the conflict just fades away. It just goes away. Because the conflict is just an external, you know, play acted out that what's going on on the inside is that it's you confronting future lights that belong to you, that belong to who you are meant to be, who, who you are destined to be, your more mature future self. So now, going back to Yaakov. Yaakov has two adversaries who are Esav and Levan. Esav is his evil twin elder brother. And Lavan is his uncle, who then becomes his stepfather. And we can say Lavan takes up the middle act. Lavan also, in Lavan, you have the word lev. Lev means heart. Lavan is at the heart of the story. But Lavan isn't the most important adversary. The most important adversary is Esav from the first act and the final act. Because Esav is not just an uncle who becomes a stepfather, Lavan is, uh, sorry, Esav is your evil elder twin brother. What is the image of an evil elder twin brother? It's the image, an elder twin brother, that's like you in the future. An elder twin brother, but it's an evil elder twin brother because he's a mask. He, he's your future self in disguise. So Esav becomes the main antagonist of Yaakov, but Esav is now, we realize, is Yaakov's future self moving backwards in time. And where do we see this? Now we're getting to our Parsha and the first segment. This Parsha, right, the third act, starts with Yaakov going back to Eretz Israel, and he knows he's going to confront, confront Esav again. He's been uh, you know, repressing his memory for many, many years, 20 years, 21 years. He's been repressing his memory, but now he can't repress it anymore because the palindrome is now getting to its second half. It's actually, it's already in its second half since the, the middle of the middle act. But now it's getting to the mirror image of the first act, which is all about Esav. So what does he do? He sends angels, emissaries, and it could be flesh and blood emissaries, or it could be spiritual angels, and there are opinions here and there, and we're not going to go into it. But the term in Hebrew is malachim, angels. He's, and angels also mean emissaries. So he's, sen he's sending emissaries into the future, into, in, in the direction that he's going. They run faster, they go. He sends them forward in time to meet Esav and to go back to him and tell him what's going on. And he says, please tell him that I spent all these years with Lavan. That's where I spent the middle act in which we weren't in touch. And I have many gifts to give to you. And then the angels go and they come back. And they say, we came to your brother, to Esav. And here Rashi says, 
you think he's your brother, that is, that you have a, a, a relationship of camaraderie and brotherhood with him, but you're wrong. He is still a sav, the hater that you, that you remember. Nothing has changed because you didn't do anything about it. You were just dealing with Lavan until now, and it's not going to change until you change it. He's still in the same state that you left him. And then, so the angels say, we came to your brother, to Esav, and now he is coming your way with 400 men. Esav is coming in Yaakov's way. Yaakov is moving, and Esav is coming in the opposite direction. He's not just staying there, waiting. He's not just wandering about. He's traveling in the opposite direction. This is the image that is now encapsulating this whole idea that we, we have presented up until now. That we have the we have Yaakov moving in one direction and Esav moving in the opposite direction with an army of 400 people. Which is, of course, is very, very frightening. So the image here is that our future self isn't just passively waiting. It's moving in my direction and it's assuming the form of an enemy, as it always has. But now the enemy is, is, is stronger, just like I'm stronger. My enemy is also stronger, because we're... I'm, for me, it's because I'm more mature in, in this world, and for my soul, which is again being dressed up like an antagonist, but it's really my soul, my future soul, my future self, it's because it's still very powerful. It hasn't aged yet, so to speak. Um, now, just to give you a sense of how perfect this idea is, or not perfect, but how it adds up perfectly with a lot of things we know, um, we know that in the beginning of the first act, the beginning of Toldot, we have two very strange things about Esav. The first strange, strange thing is that Esav is born with a lot of bodily hair. He's hairy. He was just born. How can he be hairy? But if the idea is that Esav is really the soul of Yaakov, moving backwards in time, dressed up as an antagonist, it makes perfect sense that he's hairy because he's old. Yaakov is very young, but Esav is very old because Esav is moving backwards. This is the end of his life, not the beginning. So this mysterious fact that Esav is hairy, is now, we're now getting a new answer, a new solution for this riddle. Another mysterious thing about the, of the, about the first act of Batoldot is that when Yaakov wants to buy the, from Esav the elder brother uh, position or the stature, he wants to be the firstborn. He wants to buy the property of being the firstborn. And then Esav says, well, why do I care? I'm going to die soon anyway. Why do I need this? eldership position. Why does a young person say that he's going to die soon? He's not going to die soon. You're still very young. You're both very young. But if he's moving backwards in time, then he's not young. He's, he's old because he's moving backwards towards his birth, which is now, so to speak, his death. He's, he's, so that this is why he feels that he's going to die soon, although he's very young. So we have two things at least that were a mystery in the first parasha, but they make sense if we take this idea that Esav is like the soul of Yaakov moving backwards in time, and it's really a very high holy soul, but it assumes the form of an antagonist, of an opponent. And, and, and if you really live in a little bit of Hasidut about this parasha, about all the story of Yaakov and Esav, that's exactly the usual explanation, that Esav is the higher soul, Although Esav is wicked and, and a cheater and a liar and a hunter and things that are considered negative, in Kabbalah and Hasidut, he epitomizes the lights of chaos, the lights of the world of Tohu, which are the highest lights. And the whole point of Yaakov's life is that he needs to recapture the lights, the spiritual lights that are hidden within Esav and contain them himself. So Esav is indeed the future self of Yaakov moving backwards in time. So this explains why he, he's talking about himself when he's young, that he's about to die, and explains why when he 
is born, he's hairy as if he's an old person. As if he's born old. Another thing, in the beginning of his life, Yaakov, he, he's the first to come, and then Yaakov is on his heels, literally at his heels, holding on to the heel of Esav, right? How does the life of Esav end? The life, the life of Esav ends according to a Midrash, right? Which is a, a, the stories that the sages tell us. It's not, in the, it's not in the written Torah, it's in the oral Torah, and it's written in the, in the Midrashim books, in the homiletic books is that there's a whole story, which we're not going to go into all the details, but the whole story is that as Yaakov is being buried at the end of Genesis, suddenly Esav comes along and he claims that he's the one who's supposed to be buried in Merat HaMachpelah in Hebron. Hebron. And, and there's a big argument and it ends with one of Yaakov's grandchildren, the son of Dan, one of the tribes. He kills Esav and this is a bit grotesque, but again, it's all symbolic. He, he cuts off his head. He decapitates a sav. And a sav's head ends up resting in the cave of the patriarchs in, in Hebron, in Hebron, along with all the three uh, patriarchs and the three matriarchs, right? Rachel isn't there. And... Yeah, and the head of Esav is there. What is the head? What is this image of decapitation symbolize? The Im- it symbolizes separating the body from the soul. So at the very end of his life, you have Esav's head, or soul, resting peacefully, perfectly, in the cave of the patriarchs. And we have to remember, it's loved him very much. And the body is outside, the body is buried somewhere outside, it's complete separation. And it is a perfect, perfect mirror image of the beginning. Because in the beginning, you have Yaakov holding on to the heels of Esav. Why? Because as we said at the beginning of your life, your soul is very old, and you only have a tiny little feeling of it. You know, a tiny little residue of your soul, which is going to get stronger as you, as you mature. So he's only holding on to the heel of Esav in the beginning. But in the end, it's the head of Esav that's resting at the heels of Yaakov. Because now Yaakov has matured and has contained the soul in its pristine essence, which is just, which is just the head of Esav. So it's Esav's spirituality is at the very end of the story, resting in the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, in Marat HaMachpelah. And in the beginning, he, 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 you can just maybe hold on to his heel. You didn't have his head, his, his, his light, his spirituality. So this is just goes to show you that it, it all fits together in a beautiful way. Now we have to get to the, to the end of the story. And this is, this is the main message for, for, for what we want to get from all of this strange sci-fi exploration into this Parsha. As Yaakov is about to confront Esav in the beginning of our Parsha, when he sends out the angels, it, sa- it says that he's very, very terrified. He's afraid. And it's a classical question, how can Yaakov, uh, whom, whom God guarded throughout the previous parsha, and, took, and looked after him and, and saved him from Lavan and gave him all these wives and all these children and all these miracles, how can he be afraid of Esav? Why is he now afraid? And that the, the beautiful verse that he says is, When I was younger, I passed this Jordan River, right, the, the border between Eretz Israel and outside, moving eastward, is the Jordan River. So it's in, between the first and the second act, he crossed the Jordan River, the river going eastward. And now, between the second and the third act, he's crossing the Jordan River going westward. So he says, When I crossed this river many years ago, 20-something years ago, I only had my walking stick. And I, I had no fear in my heart. Although I was running away from Esav, I knew that he's not going to chase me. I was carefree. 
And now I have these two camps that I have all these entourage. I have these wives and the children and the slaves and the sheep and the donkeys and the camels. And he's splitting them into two because he's trying to create a strategy about how to face Esav. So one camp is that if Esav kills one camp, the, the other camp remains alive. So what is he really saying? He's saying, when I was young, I was carefree. I just had my walking stick. I had, I had no children, no wives, no family. I, everything was so simple. And I was right, I was, I was going into the future. And now everything's so complicated. I have four wives. I have 12 children. I have a lot of property. And I have to strategize. I have to divide it into two. We can think about this as, as we're growing older and we have more property and money and family. And we're also dividing our camp into two. How do we call this? We call this paying the insurance company or paying for a pension. We put some money aside. So if we lose this money, we have this money. We put some savings in the bank. It's also complicated. And Yaakov is saying, why can't I go back to being this young, carefree young man that I was as I was crossing this river in the opposite direction 20-something years ago. Life was so simple. And everything was, was so wonderful. I had no worries. And now I have to... And also I, I had no fear in my heart. And now I am afraid. And the Hasidic explanations say that this is a very you know, true... Um, thoughts that this older man is having, it says, I used to be such a believer even before. And now, although I'm much older and I've seen many miracles, I find it harder to believe in God that He will truly save me and guard me. And, I, and I'm really afraid for my life and for my family's life. And there's even a Hasidic explanation that's very radical that is telling us that he, now because he's more mature spiritually, he knows that when God makes a promise, it could mean many things. And God can be very paradoxical at times. And God carries opposites. And the fact that He promised you that He's going to look after you doesn't necessarily mean He's really going to literally, physically look after you. Because everything with God is so complicated. And God is beyond paradoxes and beyond everything. And, and maybe He could, and, and maybe I, I am in danger of being killed. And it doesn't contradict the blessing. Maybe the blessing is spiritual or in some other life or until some point. Or He knows that God is really infinite and can do So he's really afraid and the stakes are really high. But now we want to take this situation. Again, it's the beginning of the third act. And in the first act, he, you know, he disguised himself as Esau, cheated himself, cheated Esau out of the, bless, out of the blessings, ran away. And then he confronted Lavan, and he did whatever he did. But now as he's going back to being a Sav, now suddenly he's terrified. And the idea is very simple. The idea is that the first time he was running away from his future self. He was running away from his future self. In a way we can say that the palindrome is a bit more complicated. It's a bit like, it's a mirror image. If you go this way, then your opposite future self can also go in the opposite way. He went to Haran and, and they still forgot about him. Now as he's going back into Eretz Israel, you know, it's a mirror image. It's like a kaleidoscope. So when he's running away from Esav, Esav was, was forgetting about him. And then he had to confront Lavan, which was another aspect of his soul, but that he rectified already. And that's not the main essence of his soul. The main antagonist of his life is Esav, the twin brother. So now as he's going back to Eretz Israel, he's not running away from his, from his future self anymore. He's going headlong into confronting his future self. And that's the reason he wasn't afraid then and he is afraid now. It's not that he was carefree. And it's not that he was just, you know, naive. It was very much simpler than that. He was just running away from his future self and he went to confront the lesser antagonist, what's simpler to do, which is Lavan. And he indeed he faced Lavan and he managed to do it and he got away. He didn't have so much fear when he confronted Lavan. But now you can't put it off indefinitely. At some point you have to confront 
the true antagonist of your life, which is the true bearer of your future self potential, of your future lights, the future energy of your soul. And that's what he's doing. And this is frightening. This is, now, he's not running away anymore. And this is truly frightening. Because he knows now that he can't postpone this or evade this in any way. He has to confront his future self. And he has to find whatever spark there is. And he has to fight the fight of a self that he's been putting off for all of his life. And and nothing in a way is promised. He could lose the fight. He could win the fight. Because this is the fight of his life. This is it. That's why nothing is taken for granted. And this way he doesn't know. Although he absolutely trusts in God. He knows that God is now putting the ball in his, you know, it's in his yard now. It's in his side. It's up to him how he makes the fight. And in, in a way, this is the highest form of faith in God, which is in, you're not passive and you're not just saying, oh, God will save me, or God will help me, or God will guard me. You're saying, now God is saying, well, now it's up to you. And I'm going to, I'm going to look back and see what you do. And what you do is going to determine what happens. And this is the ultimate faith in God, because God is so great here that He's giving over the greatness to you to, to confront the, the, what, we, what psychologists would call the demon or the shadow which is really the shadow of your future higher self, and face it. And then we see this amazing symmetry again. He sends angels, and they come back and saying, he is coming for you. And, but before he meets Esav, he also meets an angel. But this time it's Esav's angel. Again, it's a symmetry. Yaakov is sending angels forward in time, like a signal, that I want to face you, and I want us to be friends. Oh, future self that I'm afraid of. I'm giving you gifts, camels and donkeys, and everything that I've acquired in my life. I'm sending it. And the future self replies by sending the angel that Yaakov fights in the night. That mysterious angel whom the sages tell us is really the spiritual minister or guardian angel of Esav. That's Esav's reply. You're sending me your angels that come in peace, and I'm sending you my angel that doesn't come in peace. It comes to fight you. Because this is, again, it's, it's, it's a negative, inverted image. And then Yaakov confronts this angel and finally fights him. And as he fights him, and, he's able, and, and as he fights him, he realizes, or maybe he's been realizing for some time now, that this is really, finally, he needs to confront his destiny his calling, his mission in life. His mission in life isn't, to, isn't just to be Yaakov, just to hold on to the heels of the soul. He needs to, to take in all the lights. And he needs not to be just, you know, the grandson of Abraham and the son of Yitzchak, and not just Yaakov, the name that he was given when he was younger, when he was born. He needs to be Yisrael. Israel is the bearer of a mission, of the most important mission in the world, which is the mission of bringing divine light into the world. And only he can do this. And he's been running away from this throughout his life. And now he's realizing, this is my calling. My calling for each and every one of us. Also could be for a non-Jew as well. The, your higher self is like the, in Jewish terms, it's like the spark of Israel within you which is your future higher self, which you need to confront and face and, and uh, integrate into your life. And it's deadly terrifying because it means you can't run away anymore and just, you know, waste your life doing any other thing. It's terrifying because, because now you're committed to this mission completely because you know what it is and it's part of you and you can't run away. You can't you know, shun it or repress it in any way. You're saying, I can't just, you know, go to some, you know, you know, spend my spare time on a beach. You lose that completely when you find your calling because then you have to commit to it every second of your life. That's why it's so terrifying. I even heard once that in ancient in tribal civilizations, you have a shaman, he's like the witch doctor of the tribe. 
and and he's he's taking care of everyone. He's healing all the wounds, and he's taking care of. He's the leader, you know, the spiritual and energetic leader, whatever. He's taking full responsibility for all the tribe. And when he chooses his successor, the successor goes yelling and screaming and goes into a terrible tantrum that it's, he doesn't want this until he acquiesces and accepts the, the yoke. And you had something like this in a much more subtle and spiritual way with the, the, the Rebbe of Chabad, the last Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that there was a whole year that Chabad didn't have a Rebbe. Why was this? Because um, because they all wanted him to be the Rebbe, but he didn't want to be the Rebbe. It took a, a whole full year. It was a year to the death of the previous Rebbe that he accepted it upon himself to to be the new, the next Rebbe. And, and it was very obvious that it was a year of torment for him. Because he knew that as he was going to take up this mantle of the being the Rebbe, he's going to lose any tiny little vestige of privacy, of free time, of being idle, of just being an, you know, a, an individual you know, that can have a private life and that can have a spare time and that can you know, serve God in any kind of you know, usual way. It was never usual for him, but it was you know, not completely unusual. Like it became the moment he agreed to become the Rebbe. And we all need to become the Rebbe of our lives. And becoming the Rebbe of our lives is, is, is receiving the name and destiny of Israel. And it's the most terrifying thing in the world. And this way, this way Yaakov is, is afraid. He wasn't afraid the first time when he was crossing the Jordan River, going outside of Eretz Israel. Because outside of Eretz Israel is like going out away from his uh, calling, away from his shlichut. And now he's going back, he realizes, well, now this is it. And this is why he's afraid. And now as he's confronting him, he realizes, I have to now integrate into myself all these higher lights, these, you know, heroic, infinite, you know, earth-shattering lights that, that when, when, when put in the wrong vessels or in, in you know, in uh, coarse vessels, they, they, it becomes a sav. A sav is like a caricature or a, a grotesque appearance, a shadow, a, um, you know, a, a warped image of, 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 the, fut- of the, again, the future self of Yaakov. But this is because a sav is taking all this energy in a negative way. But if you take this energy, this boldness and this bravery and this, even this sort of, carefree, but in a way that's, you know, I'm going to sell my being the elder child, and I'm just going to take all the food, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And all this, if you take this in a spiritual way, it becomes amazing. It means going all the way with who you really are, but in a good way, not like Esav did. Because again, Esav is your higher soul, your future soul, your future self in, in disguise. So as he faces this and he fights him, he he wins. And then he says, give me a blessing. And this future self tells him, you are called Israel. How can the future self know? Because it's him. So how can this angel know? The angel is him. That's why he knows his name. And he tells him a secret from the future. You are called Israel, and you're going to be the father of this whole nation. And this whole nation is going to, is going to work very hard to try and bring the light of God's word to the entire world. And to show them all that they can have this this spark of Israel within them, which is, their, again, their higher, their divine spark within them. So this is the end of our, this is the climax, in a way, of this three-act story. And we learn from this that, uh, we, we have a lot of things we learn from this, but the main thing we learn from this is what we focus now at the, at the very end, is that there comes a moment in our lives in which we... We, in a way, all of our life has been in preparation for this moment. And you can put it off, you can run away from it for so many years, at some point you realize you can't run away anymore. And you can't run away anymore because your your future self is going headlong in your direction, and you you just need to face him 
which is really face your own, the depth of your own soul, both the, the higher depths of your soul, which is the, the, those, those higher lights, and the, the dark shadow of your soul, which is the, the, the lower depths of your life. And it goes together. And as you're facing your shadow inside you, you're also facing your other highest calling, which that shadow hides from you. And then you get your new name, which is your calling, your future name. And, and that's when you turn the palindrome from a mirror image into a rectification of everything that happened before. Because you're using all the energy, all the lessons you accumulated throughout your life in order to do this. And then you become fully who you were meant to be.